relationship, and is it going anywhere? And so I knew after reading that note what I had to do. So I called up Christine on the phone. I asked her to meet me for lunch at a local Chinese restaurant there in Fullerton. And so we meet at the restaurant, and I sit her down as I've got my Chinese food. And uh, I guess I called her too late. She'd already eaten, so she's just sitting there with nothing in front of her, and I'm chowing down on Chinese food. And I'm explaining to her all of the logical reasons why we shouldn't date. Because you know what? I'm so focused on school. Uh, That is my priority. I don't have time for a girlfriend. And so I'm just sharing all of this with her, and she's just politely listening. And after I got done flapping my gums and said what I wanted to say, uh, Christine began to speak. And she said, you know what? It would be kind of a shame if you got down the road and realized, oops, I guess I missed the boat. And I'm just taken aback because I thought she was super shy. She would never say anything like that. I didn't really have a response. And so I go back to my dorm and I'm thinking about this and I shared the conversation with a friend and he was one of those friends that kind of did one of these numbers to me. Well, duh. Get your act together, Davis. By the end of that evening, Christine and I were dating. A little over two years later, we became husband and wife, and here at the end of this month, we'll celebrate 20 years of marriage. And I I think back to that little lunch at that Chinese restaurant in Fullerton, California in 1996, and I know that for Christine and me, that was a defining moment in our relationship. God was moving even in this most unlikely of places. And that's the way that God tends to work. I want you to open your Bibles this morning with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we began a new message series three weeks ago, but then we immediately took a two-week break as we had our missionary from Thailand with us two weeks ago. And then last week I was up at the men's retreat, so we were blessed with a recorded message from Charles Stanley. I hope uh, you were blessed by that message And so we pick up our series again, Defining Moments, and you may remember three weeks ago when we began this series, I shared with you the defining moment of a young woman named Esther. Uh, The book of Esther is devoted to her story. She was a young maiden. Her family had been taken as POWs from Israel and had been hauled across the desert to Babylon, and there is where she grew up in Babylon that eventually was taken over by the nation of Persia. And one day, as that search began for the new queen of Persia, uh, the servants of the king knocked on her door and saw that she was lovely, saw that she was beautiful, saw that she was a a maiden who was an eligible uh, bachelorette. And so they asked her to come to the palace, and a year later she went before the king for the first time, and he looked at Esther and said, I want you to be my queen. Well, we fast forward a few years, remember what happened. The second in command, a man by the name of Haman, tricked the king into making this edict that on the 13th day of the 12th month, all of those Jews in Persia were to be exterminated. It was going to be mass genocide. There was nothing the Jewish people could do to to stop it. And 
Esther's cousin Mordecai sent her word in the palace and said, you're the only Jew who has the ear of the king. You've got to speak up. You've got to do it. And she says, I can't. It's against the law to go into his presence without first being summoned. He will kill me if I just barge into his throne room. And Mordecai spoke up and said those words that many of us will never forget. Who knows but that you have come to royal position, Esther, for such a time as this. And she stepped up and three days later went into the king's presence. He spared her life and she spoke up and was able to be used by God to save the nation of Israel. It was her defining moment when she courageously took the hard road, not the easy road, but the hard road. She stood up for God and what he wanted her to do. And as a result, thousands of lives were saved. Well, today as we turn to the very first book of the Bible, we're going to look at the defining moment of Adam and Eve. We're going to take a look at one of the most defining moments in human history, the moment when Adam and Eve sinned against God for the very first time. It's hard to overstate how defining this moment really was. It not only shaped the course of the entire uh, Word of God, it also shaped the course of human history. I like how Bible teacher Warren Wiersbe explains this. He, he writes this way. He says, if Genesis 3 were not in the Bible, there would be no Bible as we know it. Why? Because the rest of Scripture documents the sad consequences of Adam's sin and explains what God in His grace has done to rescue us. By grasping this basic truth, of this important chapter, you can better understand Paul's discussion of justification in Romans 5 and his teaching in 1 Timothy 2 about men and women in the church and his explanation in 1 Corinthians 15 of the future resurrection. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 21, the Bible records the conflict between God and Satan, between sin and righteousness, and pleads with sinners to repent, to trust God. That's pretty well said, isn't it? It's impossible to overstate how important and how impactful this life-changing moment was for Adam and Eve and the rest of humanity. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. We'll be starting in a good place, verse 1. Say amen if you're there. As always, we have for you Bibles in the racks in front of you. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, I encourage you to bring one with you next week. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we can give you a New Testament after church to take home with you free of charge. We want everybody to have a Bible with them at home. And also, we encourage you to pull out those message notes from your bulletin along with a pen or pencil so you can jot down some notes and fill in some blanks along the way to allow God's truth to sink in deeply today. So we're in Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now, the serpent, now before I read anymore, can, can I do something as I read this scripture today? This was a story that I shared over and over with my girls when they were very small. And as many dads do, when I would share this story, I would use different voices. Is that okay if I do that same thing with you today? So please don't feel like I'm talking down to you. To me, it makes the scripture come alive here, okay? And if any of you say, you know, that voice is terrible and you want to step up and do it better, I'm okay with that too. Skip, you know, you just let me know. Here we go. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the, the middle of the garden, and you must not even touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some. She ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Heavenly Father, we come to you in, in Jesus' name today, and we ask that you would bless us as we study and ingest your word today. Lord, your word is perfect. It is undefiled. It is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So, Lord, we invite your word to work on me today. In Jesus' name, amen. Adam and Eve had it made. They absolutely had it made. They were living in an absolute Paradise. I asked a DJ to dig up this image I'd found a year or two ago. It's my best mental image of, of what the Garden of Eden must have looked like. This is an actual place on earth, and it just almost looks like something out of mythology, doesn't it? With all the beautiful greenery and the waterfalls. It reminds me a lot of Victorville, right? Very, very similar. And so all of the greenery and the water and the waterfalls, just a gorgeous, gorgeous paradise. And this is where they lived. Think about how amazing life was for Adam and Eve. Their home was gorgeous. Their bodies were flawless. There were, was no illness and no handicaps and no disease. They got along perfectly with all the animals. They didn't have any temperamental uh, temper tantrums with annoying animals like we have today. The possums probably didn't hiss at them. Their dogs didn't growl at them. The cats didn't hiss and scratch at them and leave those nasty, red, swollen scratches on their arms. It was a beautiful relationship with man and all of creation. And the most beautiful part of all of it was this perfect harmony that man and woman enjoyed with God, their Creator. It was heaven on earth. But all of that, all of that came crashing down as a sneaky snake came onto the scene. Now, who was this sneaky snake? Okay, Satan, okay. Point to the, the verse in chapter 3 where you see that it was Satan who was the snake. And you look at the verses and you'll look at it once and twice and three times and he's nowhere to be found. Not a single time in this chapter is Satan mentioned by name. You don't find Satan, devil, none of that. Interestingly, the, the book of Genesis, as many of you know, was written by Moses, 
Uh, Moses, we believe, wrote all five of the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, The Jews refer to those five books as the Torah. Sometimes they call it the Pentateuch, penta meaning five. And so that is the core of the Old Testament, written by Moses, and not a single time in those first five books of the Old Testament, not a single time in the Torah will you find the devil mentioned. We ask the question, why is that? Well, evidently, Moses didn't know about the devil. You see, as we have this benefit of having the whole Bible, we have the benefit of having God's whole revelation. Amen? We have this beautiful gift that God gave to us not quite 2,000 years ago to have the entire Bible written down, God's entire revelation. And so when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, it says, do not add to this book Do not take away from this book. It's not just referring to that individual book of Revelation. It's referring to the whole Revelation, God's full counsel in the pages of Scripture, the Bible. And so this idea of Satan being real and that he is a foe of God, he is the enemy of everything that's good, that's something that God reveals later on. We find Satan mentioned in Job chapter 1, don't we? But Moses wasn't aware of the book of Job. We find it mentioned in Ezekiel and how he was kicked out of heaven. We find him especially in the book of Revelation revealed to us. And I want to put these two verses on the screen for you because this is where we discover that the serpent in the Garden of Eden was actually Satan himself. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it's on the screen for us, says this, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called who? The devil. If you didn't know who that was, it says, well, that's Satan who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So there he's given several names. It's Satan, it's the devil, it's the the great dragon, and he's the ancient serpent. And a similar thing is said later in Revelation, an angel sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, bound him for a thousand years, he threw him into the abyss. And since we have the blessing of having the entire Bible that we can read God's revelation to mankind, we know according to Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 and Revelation 20 verse 2 that that serpent in Genesis 3 was none other than Satan himself. To be a little bit more precise, what most likely happened is Satan possessed the body of a snake. Well, can Satan do that? Sure he can. Think about during Jesus' ministry, the man who was full of demons, and the guy came out, a raving lunatic, naked. He had busted chains left and right over the years. No one could contain this man. He runs up to Jesus, and Jesus says, come out of him. And the demons call out from the man and say, "Uh, uh, at least send us somewhere. Don't send us into the abyss. Send us into those pigs over there. And remember what happens. Jesus gives them permission to go into the pigs, and all the pigs run off the cliff. So if demons, underlings of Satan, can possess some swine, certainly the prince of demons can possess a snake. Amen? So that's what seems to be happening here in Genesis 3. He's possessing the body of a snake. Now, as he's doing that, that leads us into the first of these three steps to Satan's temptation. And if we understand these three steps, we will be pretty far along the road of understanding some of Satan's most wily tactics that he uses with you and me to tempt us to go into sin. The first step that he uses here, step number one, Satan disguised himself. He disguised himself. 
Once again, we find that in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. That, to me, indicates that the serpent or the snake was crafty before Satan ever possessed this specific snake. So here's kind of the, the, the picture that comes to mind as I was chewing on this the last 48 hours or so. And it seems like as, as Adam was going through the garden and naming those animals, he got to know the animals a little bit as he was naming them. You know, that thing, it, I named the duck a few hours ago, and that animal over there, he's, he's got kind of a bill, looks like a duck, but it's not a duck because he's got that weird tail and he's not going around in the water. I'm going to call him a duck-billed platypus. And, you know, he sees this thing with a long neck and, you know, it just kind of looks like a giraffe to me. And so I imagine that Adam's getting to know these animals on some level. And as he got to the snake, as he got to the serpent, he must have noticed that he was kind of crafty in the way he moved around the garden. And it seems like snakes at that point had legs of some kind because as a curse later in this chapter, God's going to punish the snake by making him crawl in his belly. So he looked like a snake but had some sort of appendages, it would seem. And so he would kind of sneak around the trees maybe or pop out from behind the bushes. And and he probably wasn't swallowing mice whole like they do today, but he was doing some kind of sneaky stuff. He was kind of crafty. And so Adam names him a snake, and so here it says that it was, the serpent, more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And so evidently, Satan knew that in Adam's mind and in Eve's mind, that snake was pretty savvy, and that would be the perfect animal to possess, to tempt Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit that God had told them not to eat of. Satan disguised himself. Notice that he possesses the body of a snake that they seem to have had some level of respect for. He didn't just flat out come to Eve in his natural state, did he? He didn't come and just appear to her as, as, a, as a spirit and say, Hey there, I want to introduce myself to you, Eve. Uh, some people call me the prince of demons. Others call me the father of lies. Nice to meet you. You know what, let me just tell you a little bit about myself. I became so arrogant, I became so egotistical, I thought I could take over God's position in heaven. And so I hated God, I wanted to defy everything about God, I want nothing to do with God, He is my mortal enemy, and so because I rebelled against God, I got kicked out of heaven, and I was stupid enough to convince a third of the angels to come with me, so they got kicked out of heaven as well. And so yes, I am the father of lies. Now let me tell you a little bit of something about this tree here. That would have been dumb. Satan would never do that. He would never reveal all of his cards, would he? He goes disguised as a snake. And he does the same type of thing with us today. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says this. The Apostle Paul writes, Satan himself masquerades as what? Did you, yeah, I think you read that wrong. Didn't it say Satan himself masquerades as a cute little guy with little horns and a a little pointy tail and a pitchfork, right? He disguises a little red guy going out on Halloween night. No, he disguises himself. He masquerades as an angel of light. He's been doing that since the beginning. Men, when Satan wants to attack your sexual purity, he doesn't put ugly women in front of you, does he? Let's be real with each other this morning. Men, when Satan wants to attack your sexual purity, he puts a knockout in front of you because he really wants to knock you out. 
Ladies, when Satan wants to lure you into gossip, he doesn't give you a tiny little morsel of gossip. He gives you a big juicy morsel of gossip on someone you've been dying to get some dirt on. That's the way he does it. He disguises himself. He masquerades himself as an angel of light. Satan disguises himself. He makes sin look so, so good. He writes, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that he doesn't want Satan to outwit us or for us to be unaware of Satan's schemes. So never forget one of the oldest schemes in Satan's playbook is to outwit you by disguising himself as someone or something that looks so so good. Evidently, Adam and Eve had already come to believe that the snake was an exceptional creature. If so, it's no surprise that Satan came disguised as that exceptional creature. Step number two. Satan simply doesn't stop at disguising himself. Step two, he questioned God's Word. He questioned God's Word. Look again at Satan's words in the second half of verse 1. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Just throwing out that simple question. Throwing it out probably with a snide look on his little snaky face. Sarcasm in his tone. Did he really say you must not eat from any tree? The devil is so, so sneaky. One minute earlier, Eve was absolutely convinced of what God had said. One minute earlier, she was convinced that God said, eat any tree, fruit in the garden that you want, except for the one in the middle, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You stay away from that one. It's off limits. Don't eat it. She was absolutely convinced of that in her mind one minute earlier. But the little snake comes up and starts planting doubts in her mind. Did God really say, and all of a sudden, she is not so sure. She's second-guessing her memory. Notice how she responds there to the snake's temptation. Notice verse 3. The woman said, we may, not eat, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and catch this, and you must not touch it. Now, wait a minute. When did God ever say don't touch it? The answer is he didn't, did he? He's got her backpedaling. She's not so sure of what God said because he's planting these doubts in her mind and here she is adding to what God had said. God never said don't touch it. He simply said don't eat it. And so he's got her all confused. She's second guessing the word of God. It's a dangerous, dangerous step that Satan allures us into taking. Does the Bible really say, Satan will plant in your mind, does the, does the Bible really say that you can't have sexual relations with your boyfriend or fiancé before you're married? And he plants that question in our mind, and well, come to think of it, I, I, I'm certain it says you can't commit adultery, I can't cheat on my husband. I, I can't cheat on my wife. But come to think of it, maybe it doesn't say that. See how he works? You know what? Just a question for you, Christian. Does, does the Bible really say that homosexuality is a sin? Well, I've always, I've always been taught that, but come to think of it, I can't think of a specific verse 
maybe, maybe it doesn't say that after all. Maybe, maybe I've been taught wrong. He gets us to second guess what God's Word is saying. Does God's Word really say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Well, I, I think so. I think so. I think I read that somewhere in my church's doctrinal statement, but maybe I've heard that wrong. Maybe I read that wrong. Maybe, maybe it doesn't say that. It seems a little bit too narrow-minded now that you bring it up. It, it does seem too narrow-minded. I, I'm guessing the Bible doesn't say that. Uh, does God really, really say that the, the Bible is without error? Come on. It's written over the course of more than 1,500 years. You know, it's, it, it's got over 30 different human authors that God inspired to write it. It's written on three different continents. It's been translated into multiple languages. Come on, are you telling me that it's without error? That just doesn't make any logical sense. You know what? I, I think, think maybe you're right. Uh, maybe, maybe what it is is it doesn't have any big errors. Maybe the little ones are okay. And Satan does this over and over and over on a daily basis with Christian after Christian and unbeliever after unbeliever. He plants these questions in our mind and he plays dumb and just throws them out and we start second-guessing what God's Word has told us. We start second-guessing the truth that we know and have known for years about God's Word. It's one of his tactics And Satan says we should not be unaware of his schemes. Step number three, Satan denied God's word. It wasn't enough to simply disguise himself. It wasn't enough to simply question God's word. Once he had Eve back on her heels, second-guessing what God had said, Satan goes for the jugular and he flat-out denies God's word. He says, you will not surely die. Think about that statement. What he's saying in no uncertain terms is that God is a liar. What he is saying in no uncertain terms is that God is not good. He is not looking out for your best interest. He is not wanting wanting for you to be loved and to progress in life. He is holding you back. He's keeping something from you. He's keeping his his thumb on you and pressing you down and oppressing you. God is a liar and God is not good and God is not loving and God does not care about you. All of that wrapped up in that simple statement, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And that wicked little snake has been saying much the same thing for the last six to ten thousand years. He puts before us this, this, this tempting, this alluring notion that if we go down that wide road to destruction, Not only will it be more fun, our eyes will be open and life will be so much better. And we'll get to enjoy what God has been selfishly holding back from us. That's a subtle lie behind just about every temptation 
that we will ever face. Sin is much more pleasurable. Sin is much more fulfilling. Sin is the way to go. God is not truthful. God is not good. God is not loving. God does not know what's best. You go my way instead, Satan says. You see, Satan has this way of making God's good and perfect world topsy-turvy at every turn. Satan has a way of saying, no, God is not good, God is evil. I am not evil, I am good. He turns everything on its ear. God's command is not in love, God's command is in hate and selfishness. My temptations are, are not really temptations, it's, it's some wonderful self-improvement advice for you. I don't hate you, I care about you. I'm not trying to pull you away from God. I'm trying to get you to self-actualize, to become like God. He turns everything on its ear. We need to remember this so He doesn't outwit us. We need to hide God's Word in our hearts every day and stay in prayer so that we aren't duped by Satan's schemes. Once again, He finishes His temptation, unfortunately, successfully. He finishes speaking in verse 5. And whether Eve realized it or not, she was at a crossroads. She had two choices. She could believe and obey God or believe and follow the serpent. She had reached her defining moment that would change the course of human history. And look again at what her decision was at her defining moment, starting in verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food... When she saw that it was pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some. She ate it. She also gave some to her husband. Don't miss this next little phrase. Who was with her. So Scripture is clear that Eve was the one that was directly tempted by Satan. But it seems pretty clear as well that Adam was right behind her and kept his mouth shut when he should have been speaking up. She gave some to her husband, and he also took some and ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Once Satan duped Eve into questioning God's Word and doubting God's Word and even doubting God's goodness, the fruit of the tree became very, very alluring. Just a few minutes earlier, she could have walked by that tree and it was, eh, nothing. It didn't pull her, but after Satan planted those doubts in her mind about God's truthfulness and about God's goodness and about God's faithfulness, After he planted those doubts in her mind, she had a brand new vantage point. And she looks at that tree and she says, you know what? It it looks healthy. It it doesn't look like it will hurt me. And she looks a little closer. And you know what? It is very attractive. It's really easy on the eyes, this fruit I'm looking at. Men, you take that fruit and replace it with a centerfold. There's a reason Satan will place a centerfold in front of you that is easy on the eyes. Same trick he used here in Genesis 3. We look at it, it looks healthy, it doesn't look like it'll hurt me, it's pleasing to the eyes, it's easy on my eyes. And then this third thing notices, she notices that it is good 
for attaining wisdom, at least according to this very reputable serpent over here. It's going to be useful for attaining wisdom and knowledge. So she takes it, she holds it in her hand, and then she eats it, defying God's command. And then it wasn't okay for her to be separated from God by herself, so she gives some to her husband, and he foolishly eats it as well. Adam and Eve had just sinned against God, and the world would be forever changed. Verse 6, she gave some to her husband who was with her. He ate it. Verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves, and the rest is history. Sin was now in the world, and humanity would never be the same. Even the animal kingdom and the land would never be the same. Adam and Eve... Uh, Their sin was a watershed moment where the perfect harmony between God and man was split in two and it polluted everything and everyone on planet earth. Male and female relationships would never be the same. Our harmony with the animal kingdom would never be the same. And cats would start scratching us and causing us to puff up on the arms. And, and, and those stupid opossums would start hissing at us. And, and the animal kingdom in many ways would turn on us. Nothing would ever be the same. Even the land itself would start producing tumbleweeds. That darn Russian thistle. And when the wind would kick up in the high desert... We would have to deal with those things every spring. God did not want it to be this way, but He knew from the very beginning that this would be the aftermath of a sin-cursed world. The harmony between all things was severed. The harmony between God and man was severed. And there would be never again another way for that harmony to be restored, except there would be only one way. The only way this harmony could possibly be restored would be if God Himself came down and lived a perfect life that Adam and Eve and you and me were incapable of living. If God Himself would come down and take the form of man and live a perfect life and thereby be able to live a perfect sacrificial death and take the death penalty for Adam and for Eve and for you and for me, unless God Himself did it, there was no other hope. And so God decided that that's exactly what he was going to do. And you may have heard of him. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus was and is and always will be the only way. Well, to save time, we won't read verses 9 through 24, but most of you remember the end of the chapter. God, after Adam and Eve hide from him with their silly little fig leaves covering their their key vital parts, God asked the first question in the Bible. Adam and Eve, where are you? First question God asks in the Bible. I guess God's not as all-knowing as we thought he was. He didn't know where they were, right? Right? No, he knew right where they were. Maybe he was playing peekaboo. Woo-hoo! No, God wasn't playing peekaboo, especially with that voice. He would never do that. God wasn't unaware of where they were. He wasn't playing peekaboo. He was giving them an opportunity similar to the opportunities that He gives you and me. To fess up. To confess our sin. To come clean. Adam finally comes out from behind the bush or tree, wherever he was hiding. God asks him the question, Where are you? 
Adam starts stumbling all over his words. God asks him the point-blank question, did you eat from the tree that you were told not to eat from? And if you look throughout Genesis 3, you'll find that Adam never completely fesses up. He starts coming up with excuses. The man said in verse 12, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And so began a long, long history of husbands blaming their wives for dumb, dumb stuff that they did themselves. It would never happen with the husbands in this church though, right guys? Never would happen here. God asks him a very simple question. Did you eat the fruit? He never fesses up in this chapter. He points the finger at his wife. And actually, he points the finger at God too. This woman that you gave me, by the way, you're the one that, I didn't ask you for a woman. I would have been perfectly capable of just, you know, perfectly satisfied just keeping my rib. You know, I've always believed that I shouldn't go under the knife if I don't have to, God. It was your idea. Blaming his wife. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And so, he blames his wife. I want you to not miss this next point. Adam doesn't humbly confess his own sin. He cowardly confesses his wife's sin. That's cowardly. He doesn't own his own sin. He doesn't confess his own sin. He cowardly confesses his wife's sin. Adam acts like a first grader. It's her fault. She made me do it. Friends, it's bad enough when we sin, but after we sin, we've got to fess up to our sin. We've got to stop blaming everybody else. Don't we live in a culture where everyone is a victim and it's always someone else's fault? Our culture is filled with full-grown first graders. We're filled in our culture with full-grown first graders pointing their fingers. It's everybody's fault. It's my dad's fault. It's my mom's fault. It's my ex-wife's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's my neighbor's fault. It's my big toe's fault. But I don't. it's not mine. Oh yeah, maybe it's mine, but it's its fault. We're blaming anything and everyone but ourselves. It's one thing I hate to see in my own kids. When my kids get caught, we all do wrong things. Every child disobeys at some point or another. But when my kids do not fess up to what they did, man, I hate to see that. You know what I love to hear as a dad? Maybe you parents love to hear these words as well. I love it when my child fesses up and simply says, I did it. It was my fault. I deserve what's coming to me. Aren't those like music to our ears, parents? When we hear that from some of our kids, the the kids we have that are most likely to always scapegoat, most likely to point the finger at someone else, most likely to come up with all the excuses in the book, when that particular child comes up to us and says, I'm sorry, it was my fault, I did it, please forgive me, I deserve what's coming to me. It almost doesn't matter what they did, I want to let them off the hook. As a father, my heart just dances because, wow, they finally owned it. They finally fessed up to what they did. And, and seriously, uh, you know, i got two of my kids in the room right now. That's a secret with Dad here. You know, seriously, no matter what you did, if you'll own it, I'll be very tempted not to punish you at all. Because that's music to a parent's ears. And Adam and Eve, they were given an opportunity. Well, Adam blew it. And so God turns to Eve. What about you? How come you ate of the fruit? Does she do better than her husband? Not really. It's a snake. 
that snake? That snake made me do it. Well, at least she didn't blame God directly like her husband did, but she didn't do much better. She blames the snake, he blames her, I blame you, you blame me, and so on it goes throughout history. Blaming everyone except for ourselves. I want to suggest to you today that your next defining moment may come at a time when you've got a big, juicy temptation sitting right in front of you. And you are there at the crossroads, and you have a decision to make. Will I go down the wide road to destruction, or will I obey God and take the narrow road that leads to to life, that leads to pleasing God? For some of us, that may be our defining moment where we have to stand firm against temptation. But don't miss me on this. Your next defining moment may be after you've already blown it. Okay? Don't miss this. Your defining moment may come after you've blown it. You've already had sexual relations before your wedding night. You've already engaged in that gossip and the cat's already out of the bag. You've already abused the alcohol or the drugs. You've already done this. You've already left that church. You've already, whatever it is, you've already blown it. And there you are and you're at that moment where God calls that to your mind and heart And it gives you the opportunity that he gave Adam and Eve after they sinned. And you have a choice to make. Will I come up with excuses? Will I point fingers? Will I blame everyone but myself? Or will I stand and own it? Will I confess my sin to God and say, I did it. It was my fault. I deserve what's coming to me. But Lord Jesus, I commit to you right now, if you will forgive me, I will serve you and follow you for the rest of my life and not do that same dumb thing again. You see, God in His amazing sovereignty and power will oftentimes give us those defining moments after we sin. And you've got a choice to make. I leave this last passage with you that's been an encouragement to so many Christians over the years. 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, Jesus Christ is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you believe those words? One last word of hope. If you have blown it and you hear a series like this and you say to yourself, it is too late for me. I already took the wrong path. With Jesus Christ, it is never, ever too late. You are at a defining moment right now. And you may have blown it at your last crossroads, but don't blow it today. You go to your Lord humbly and confess your sin, and He can change your life and set you on the right path from this point forward. Would you pray with me? Lord, help us to rise to the occasion when you give us these defining moments. For some of us, Lord, we may be facing a temptation right now. and Maybe not right now, maybe next week, maybe next month, Lord. And When we find ourselves at the crossroads, even if it's in a, an obscure place in some Chinese restaurant in a town we hardly ever visit, when that defining moment comes, may we stand for you courageously and boldly. Lord, none of us here want to go down the path to hell. But Lord, it's easy to say that now when we get in the middle of that tempting situation, it's so much harder. Lord, I I just 
thought in my mind about our teenagers here. Lord, we just want to, in unity, say, Lord, would you protect our teenagers from temptation? Whatever it may be, Lord, whether it's, whether it's sexual temptation, or like porn, oh God. Whether it's a temptation, Lord, to get in the habit of spewing profanity from their mouths. Whether it's a temptation to chase after money and and fame and fortune. Whether it's a temptation to stop going to church or youth group. Whatever that temptation may be, Lord, would you strengthen our teenagers and would you give them the wisdom to always lean on you so they do not fail on their own. Lord Jesus, I pray for the adults in this room that you would help us to stay strong. And I do pray for those, Lord, who have already failed you. That's really all of us. Lord, I pray that from this point forward, we would confess that sin. We would truly repent from that sin. That we would lean on you, Lord, to keep us on the straight and narrow from this point forward. Because this is a new day. You say in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. Make us new, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.